Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to wage war against another king, will not sit down first and consider whether he is able, with 10,000, to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot... Then, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So, therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. I speak in the name of the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, today we hear Jesus say that uh, you must hate your parents, hate spouses, hate children, hate your brothers and sisters, even hate life itself in order to be his disciple. And then he follows that with these two little parables, odd parables about building towers and waging war. This passage can be a little baffling, can't it? And it certainly sounds very demanding on the part of Jesus. Well, it is demanding. Here Jesus is being, he's being blunt with us. And despite it's demanding, there is good news here if we know where and how to look for it. And to begin that search for the good news, we we start with what is certainly the most jarring word in the whole passage. Hate. It is indeed jarring, isn't it, to hear Jesus tell us that we should hate anybody. Well, this word hate is a translation from the Greek word mazeo. Now, mazeo is accurately translated as hate, but it is an incomplete translation. It doesn't give us the full nuance of the word. You see, miseo is a is a verb in the in the Greek, but it is a verb in the comparative tense. In other words, Jesus says that we must hate family in comparison with someone or something. And what is that someone or something? It is God. It is God. So is Jesus telling us that we literally must hate our parents and our children and our spouses? No, but what he is telling us is this, is that it is God first, and in comparison to that, all else must pale with respect to our love. Next, I think we need to look at the context in which these words were spoken. And I hearken us back to last week where we left off. Last week, Jesus was in the home of a Pharisee, and he took that opportunity to turn a spotlight onto that culture and the Pharisees themselves, a spotlight on a culture that 
glamorized, that, that, that held up, if you will, the notions of prestige and power and social standing. He shined a spotlight on the corruption of the Pharisees and the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And he also took that opportunity to show, in contrast, God's view, his view also of the world, a view in which everybody, everybody has a seat, but not only a seat, a seat of honor at the banquet table, a topsy-turvy view of the world in light of the culture of the day and the culture of our day. Well, today, Jesus takes that spotlight and turns it away from the Pharisees and those hypocrites and those who are corrupt and shines it on you and me. Today, Jesus says, look, what we talked about last week is a good thing. It's a good thing to see and to name, to point out hypocrisy and corruption. But just being critical is not enough. We are called to be doers as well. And we start this doing, the the entrance to starting this doing is this, making sure that our loves are in proper order. Jesus is saying, we must love God first and foremost. Everything else comes in second place. Now, bear with me. In our culture, where we value so much power, where we value so much possessions, and in the culture of the first century, where there was such value on uh, self-esteem or esteem and um, position, these are radical, these are radical thoughts, aren't they? Radically new thoughts. Well, in fact, they're not. I want to read something to you. This is from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children. And talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand, fix them as an emblem on your forehead, and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. These words from Deuteronomy, written centuries before Jesus, these are the words of the famous Shema. The Shema is the very foundation of the religion of Judaism. Everything rests upon this. It is so important to Judaism that devout Jews, each morning upon arising, recite these words, recite the Shema. And what is the Shema telling us? The same thing Jesus says centuries later, that you are to look and love your God, the one God, above all else, And everything else and everyone else comes in second. 
Now, does this mean we actually are not supposed to love our family and spouses? Well, of course not. Jesus here, as he often does, is participating in a little bit of hyperbole to make his point. But the point is this, that when we love God first, then our view of family begins to change. And this is reflected in today's lesson from Philemon. Philemon, pardon me. The letter to Philemon is unique among Paul's letters in this sense. Other than some travel plans at the very end, we read today the entire letter to Philemon. We see all the substance of it, and the background is important. Paul is writing to Philemon, who at one time was the slave owner of the slave Onesimus. Onesimus at some point escaped from Philemon and fell under Paul's care. And today, Paul is proposing to send Onesimus back to Philemon. Now, in that culture, in that day, if a a slave escaped his owner or her owner and was returned to ownership, the very best that the slave could hope for was a severe beating. Harder physical punishment, including death, was always a possibility. But here Paul is suggesting this to to Philemon. He is saying, when he was there at your house, you viewed Onesimus as a slave, but I I want to return him to you so that you will see him no longer as a slave, but as a brother, so that you will see him through my eyes. In other words, what Jesus is saying is once we love God among everything else, above everything else, we see the world differently. We see everybody is family. Everybody is brother. Everybody is sister. Now back to today's gospel. When I began preparing for this morning, as I typically do, one of the first things I do is open my trusty study Bible to read the passage. And there... The headline of this passage, the heading of it, if you will, was this, the cost of discipleship. And I was struck by that because the cost of discipleship is the title of a monumental book written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The cost of discipleship is a staple among seminaries. Most seminarians read it at some point. I read it about four or five years ago. It was very influential in terms of my theology. The book is written, as I said, by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, Bonhoeffer wrote this book and lived in the first half of the 20th century. He lived in Germany, where he was a renowned and brilliant pastor and theologian. Unfortunately, he didn't get to see the second half of the the 20th century because he was arrested by the Nazis during the war because he was bold enough to preach against the Nazi regime from the pulpit. And then three days, three days before the Nazi surrender, he was executed. But before that, he had the opportunity and was able to publish this book, The Cost of Discipleship. And it is instructive for us today because primarily of what Uh, Bonhoeffer has to say in the first part of the book. It's a pretty lengthy section, and throughout that section, Bonhoeffer rails against what he calls cheap grace. 
He defines cheap grace as the acceptance of God's grace, the acceptance of God's unfathomable love, God's inexplicable willingness to forgive us without paying any attention to the second half of the equation. That part of the equation of what God expects and asks of us. And this is where the parables that Jesus told this morning, this is where they come into play. You see, Jesus says, you don't decide to do these things until you first recognize the cost of building a tower, the cost of waging war, and you're willing and can pay that cost. The same, he says, is true for discipleship. Don't talk about being my disciple unless you first sit down and look at what the cost of discipleship is and determine that you are willing to pay that cost. What is that cost? Well, frankly, it's summed up very nicely in our baptismal covenant, in the promises, really the vows that we make in our baptismal covenant. We renewed that covenant a few weeks ago. We'll renew it again in about three weeks, and we do it from time to time throughout the year. And it's intentional that we that we over and over remind ourselves of our covenant, our covenant to, among other things, work for the justice, work for justice among all people, that we will strive to show respect for the dignity of every human being. These are action words. These are action verbs, work and strive And this week, as I read today's gospel lesson over and over, I began to realize there was a nagging question that was percolating in my head. And when I finally turned my attention to it, I realized the question was this. Are you, Randy, guilty of accepting cheap grace? In other words, am I guilty of wishing and wanting for the world to be better, but not doing the hard work of working for justice, striving to show the respect of every human being. And as I pondered that question, I pondered how well I live up to my baptismal covenant, I had to admit that there are times when I focus on the grace to the exclusion of the work of the striving of what God asks of me. And I realize I need to do better. Jesus is asking that same question of you this morning. Amen.